Hello, and welcome back to the CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Molly Rao, with my co-host, Jessica Rickert. Today's podcast features Melanie Conklin. Melanie's work centers around writing middle grade novels. Melanie shares about her writing process, inspiration for her stories, and how Nicholas Sparks helped her get started in the publishing world. Are here with Melanie Conklin. Thank you, Melanie, for joining us on our podcast. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background? Sure thing. Hi, I'm Melanie. I'm very excited to come and visit Denver in the beginning of 2022. Let's all take a moment to acknowledge how ridiculous it is that it's almost 2022. But um, uh, my background was in uh, not writing at all. I actually went to design school and studied to be a product designer. Most people don't know what that is, but basically if you've ever been in Target or Walmart, all that stuff on the shelves, that's what a product designer works on. We decide what something looks like and how it works. These kind of consumer products that you have in your home. So if you've ever seen like a giant cupcake birthday cake, it's like a giant cake and it comes out of a pan. I designed that pan. So you probably have stuff in your house that I designed and worked on. That's a fun talking point, but um, so I was I was a designer for about ten years. I quit to stay home with my kids while they were little, and I still liked them. Um, and and I got bored during nap time. Started writing, and five years later, I was an author. So that's how I got here. <laughs> so I feel like there have to be more steps from going from writer to author. So are there some stories or some pieces there of how you went from like I'm writing with my time to I have something published. Sure. Uh, you know, it's interesting because um, I've been in publishing for a, a few years now and I've met a lot of writers and a lot of them have very circuitous, uh, unexpected paths to becoming authors. Um, for me, I just think I have always had a love of the creative process. So um, when I had this like energy, one day I woke up and thought, oh, I have this idea for this story. Well, if I was writing that, I'd start it this way. And so at nap time, I was like, well, why don't I just write that down? Like I have Microsoft Word, like I can do that for free. Uh, and product design, you have to have about a million dollars to like make a product. But for, for a book, all, all you have to have is somewhere to write, you know, even on paper. So I started writing and I told my husband, you know, I think I'm writing a book. And he was like, of course you are. So just let me know when it's done. And, and then, I, then I tried to read the whole internet, you know, to learn how to be a writer. Um, I finished that first draft and it was really bad. It did all the things that you're not supposed to do. So the protagonist was like 14, which is the dead space in between middle grade and YA. Um, and she woke up from a dream on the first page and looked in the mirror immediately, which all three of those things are bad. Like none of that is good. Um, and so once I started learning what I needed to do, I explored more, discovered that my voice uh, for middle grade was something that really resonated with me. Um, and Counting Time was my first book that was published was the third book that I wrote. Um, and when I wrote that one and my critique partners were reading it, they were like, you know, this is something like this, this reads like a real book. Um, what's funny is it really didn't, there was still a lot of work that, that needed to be done. But at that point I, um, entered into the arena of trying to find an agent 
And, uh, you know, most people are always like, so how did you get your book published? Like, did you just send it to the publisher or whatever? What happens is a, an author works with an agent who's like your representative, who then takes your book to a publisher and convinces an editor at that publisher to buy it. And then you get paid and the agent gets a chunk of what you get paid. So it's the first big decision you have to make when you're entering publishing is what agent are you going to work with? And so I um, I had a, a few different agents that were interested in me, which was great, very fortunate. And my agent that I ended up working with at that time, um, he he was didn't have a ton of experience yet with his own clients, but he said, you know, one of our, I, I want to have one of our uh, agency clients call you, can answer questions. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. So he told me what time I was going to call, get a call, but he didn't tell me who was calling. Um, so my, my phone rings and I pick it up. And on the other end of the line, the guy says, hi, this is Nicholas Sparks. Isn't that wild? And I went, what? <laughs> and he goes, this is Nicholas Sparks. You know, the, the author, you know, you, you're looking to work with uh, one of my agents. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. So I was totally, my, my brain emptied of all thoughts. Like, what am I supposed to say to Nicholas Sparks, right? Well, he turned out to be super helpful, um, you know, has a ton of experience, could answer any question I had. And of course, had some real verbal gems that I was just like, wow, I can't believe I just heard him say that to me on the phone. Um, so I did end up signing with that agent. Uh, we, we don't work together anymore now for totally other reasons, but we had a great time working together for a few years. And uh, I will never forget having Nicholas Sparks call me uh, from, <laughs> from the road to talk to me about publishing. <laughs> That is an amazing story. I would have probably freaked out too and not been able to talk about anything coherently. Um, so with your first book, it centers around cancer, right? Yeah. The, so it, yeah. Tell us about how did that play? Like, was there a personal experience that you felt the need to write this book around that? Sure. So my, my debut novel uh, was for middle grade readers and it's called Counting Time, but time is spelled with an H-Y, like the herb. Um, and it's about a girl named Time who moves across the country for her little brother's cancer treatment. Um, and it's sort of about that conflict that you have if you're a sibling, where you often want things for yourself, but you have to compromise a lot because there are other children who need things in your family as well. Um, which I have a little sister. So there's a lot of fodder there for me about that topic. Um, I, I was gravitated towards writing about pediatric cancer and specifically neuroblastoma because a few years prior to writing this, uh, when I lived in Brooklyn, one of our neighbor's children was diagnosed with neuroblastoma. And this was when blogs had just started. And so everybody was like, wow, you can read, you can read about each other's like daily lives. Like, and they can just up post updates. And everyone in our neighborhood followed their blog and organized meal train and raised funds when they needed it for different things. And I became pretty intimately familiar with how difficult the treatment is for a lot of pediatric cancers, specifically this one. Um, and I felt like it was just a really, really tough position for parents to be in that you're pursuing a treatment that you know is painful and difficult for your child, but it's the best chance they have. It's the best chance science can give them to uh, outlive the disease. So that's what I wanted to write about in that book. Um, and I think it was the first uh, middle grade that was had neuroblastoma in it, I'm pretty sure. Um, 
but I was personally familiar with it then. I started working with a group called Cookies for Kids Cancer that raises funds um, to support research in that arena. And part of what I, my proceeds from Counting Time went to supporting their research. And you have some crazy statistics about childhood cancer on your website, which like shocked me. I didn't know um, that it was, isn't it the greatest killer of kids? Like that's how kids die. The most deaths are attributed to cancer. Yeah, you would, you would think it might be uh, something else, but actually pediatric cancer is the leading cause of um, death in children um, a lot of times because it's not uh, discovered until it's quite late. Um, a lot of times you don't have the signs that you have with adult bodies. Um, and so, and things are progressing quickly because they have rapidly dividing cells, you know, because they are growing. Um, so that's what neuroblastoma in particular is cancer of the nervous system. So it can appear anywhere that you have nerves, which means it can be all over your whole body, um, not only in your brain and your spine. So that can make it really hard to treat. Um, and, and that's what was kind of astonishing to me when I got to know the statistics through Cookies for Kids Cancer was that there was so little money being spent on, on cures for, for children or even treatment. And that it's very difficult to even develop treatments ethically because um, you don't want to do a, a study where you're giving placebo to children, you know, in order. So most of these treatments, including the one that's depicted in Counting Time, which is an antibody treatment, they remain in clinical trial status permanently because in order to get approval, they would have to do a blind study and they would have to knowingly let children suffer without getting the treatment. And that's just a real conflict of ethics. So it's very complicated trying to develop new treatments for pediatric cancer. And that's why supporting it is really important because they don't have the same kind of funding draw that say breast cancer awareness has. Um, however, they have some of the best results. When I first started and learned about neuroblastoma, there, from that time to when Counting Time was published, Cookies for Kids Cancer funded seven dozen clinical trials, and they actually increased the rate of survival among children in that like five-year span. And so when you think about one organization doing that work, that's what they got done. What can we do if, if more people contribute to that? So it's definitely a topic that I'm passionate about, having lived through witnessing my neighbor go through it. Changing gears a little bit. Um... So obviously you tried to read the internet and you have also, you know, had this experience with your neighbor where you got inspired and you explored that. Um, so, you know, there's, there's this great story of where your idea came from, but what does your writing process look like, you know, from idea to words on page? Cause you know, you said you were writing a book and your husband was like, of course you are like, so obviously you kind of sit around yeah. and write anyways. So what does writing look like for you as an individual? Well, for me, um, writing is, it's fun because I've been figuring out that process. I'm glad you're asking me now and not five years ago, because five years ago, I'd be like, well, I'm trying this. It's not going well. I'm trying that. <laughs> Maybe I'll try this next. It definitely takes a while to discover your own process. Even, even being someone who came from a creative background, I had to figure out what worked for me with writing. And now the process is really what I love about it. 
It's very chaotic early on. When I first have an idea for a novel, I've learned to just kind of let the different parts of the idea come to me in whatever order they're going to come and not be judgmental about it. I just let myself write notes. I write them in a notebook and then I write them on my phone. I use notepad on my phone. And so a lot of times right before I go to bed at night, I'm tapping out some stuff on my phone so that then my brain will go to sleep. Um, <laughs> but I just kind of let all of these little pieces of the story kind of build up. And I get to a certain point where I've kind of like built this momentum and this little mountain of a foundation. And then I'm ready to start actually trying to write the book. So when I write a first draft, I don't worry about how bad it is because I'm never going to show it to anybody. I don't even show my first draft to my agent or editor. Nobody gets to see it. So um, I call it a zero draft because I feel like that's less pressure. Like it's not even number one. I just, I'm just, just trying it out. So I write a draft and then I take a break from it. And then I go back and look at what do I actually have here? And I outline it. And that is when I actually look at it and go, how do I need to make this into a good story? Like, where do I need to make a good midpoint? And what do I need to be the climax? I don't worry about any of that very much before I start writing. That for me is revision. So when I'm in that phase, I have, you know, those trifold boards for like science fairs. So I have one of those in my office and that's how I work. So I use note cards and post-it notes and I just pin them all over that board. And the one panel is the first act. The middle panel is the second act. And the last panel is the third act. And I just put it all up in order and then rewrite it again. Um, so typically for me, I'm rewriting a lot and I have a lot of visual mess around me, sketches, post-it notes. It just this accumulation of like thought that then I basically kind of organize and then it turns into a book. So that's what I've discovered works for me. And I love seeing other writers processes. It's so cool. Do you talk to other writers about their process and tweak your process based on that? Or have you come to this is really what works for you? And so continue with that. You know, um, writers, a lot we're, we generally like kind of like craft and are sort of nerds about the writing process because you're spending a lot of time doing it. So it would be hard to keep doing it if you didn't have a real passion for it. So yes, totally. I, every time I share a picture of something in my office of, oh, this is how I'm organizing. Like right now I'm doing NaNoWriMo, which some people may have heard of. It's the National Novel Writing Month happens in November. And it's like a group challenge where everybody tries to write 50,000 words for the month. Um, and you're, you're kind of cheering each other on and you're getting one of those zero drafts done. I'm not drafting right now, though. I actually had a bunch of other stuff I needed to do. So I decided to make a list where I just made a box for each and everything I needed to do. Like I need to revise 200 pages. And I broke that up into 20 boxes of 10 pages each. And I, I just made this whole grid of boxes and I said, guys, this is what I'm doing for NaNoWriMo. I'm checking off two boxes a day. And some of my other friends then sent theirs on Twitter saying, yeah, I'm going to do this too. I'm going to organize it like that. So writers generally really love seeing those visual parts of the process. And um, I've absolutely picked up some things from other people. Um, one of my good writing friends, Tracy Batiste, um, who has a new book, just came out, African Icons. Um, she does post-it notes on the wall too. And we're always comparing and sending things back. And I'll be like, wait a second, is that color coding? What are you coding there? And how are you color coding it? Like, I need to know your secrets. <laughs> well, 
Well, and that reminds me, you know, this is more of a NaNoWriMo plug, but some of, I don't know if you've ever used some of their like pre-writing stuff before the actual, you know, month begins, but some of those resources are phenomenal writing resources. Um, like there's some character development stuff mm-hmm. that I plugged through one time and, you know, yeah, it's like, there's so many good resources and I'm sure those came from awesome authors like yourselves who were sharing their process and, you know, helping develop writers and, you know, it's a cool place to look. So as teachers, like they should go check that out because man, there's some good stuff in there for kids to work on ideas. And, and honestly, a lot of it, this is, it kind of goes back and forth. And I have seen a lot of things that I have learned from, from, from educators because you guys take, this kind of personal chaotic process and chunk it up and organize it so that you can teach it, ladder someone through that process, right? Can you tell my sister is a teacher now an assistant principal? Like I, I got the lingo, but anyway. Um, and so I have often seen something, like I remember one time there was one of my um, educator friends had um, the different ways of, re- the different stages of revision in scale. So one is a carrot and one is adding a spider leg and one is adding a flap and one is a blank piece of paper. And the visualization of that, I was like, oh my gosh, that is exactly what I do. Like trying to communicate that to students. Um, I learn things from what I see educators sharing. Um, And so there's definitely this kind of sharing that goes back and forth. Um, I like pre-writing. I love to linger there. I think that you often see people in movies sitting down and clackety clack. They're just going at it at a blank page. And I know some people might do that and that might be wonderful for them. But the vast majority of people I know, they do some kind of collection phase before they do pre-writing. They do worksheets. They have a notebook or they just write like Erin Entrada Kelly, who's a friend of mine. She writes by hand. She's got amazing handwriting also. You have to check out. But like she writes all this stuff by hand and kind of lets it build up also. And I think that's really important. And we often don't give ourselves credit for it. But that collecting, if you're making mood boards, if you're making notes, if you're drawing your characters, like all of that is writing. So you got to give yourself credit for that too. And so, yes, I love those kind of pre-writing resources. They're great. Well, and thinking of some of that idea collection, like what is your process for gathering and collecting ideas ahead of time? Like we talked to one author who she observes and she journals a lot, and then she uses those journals to develop her writing. So what is kind of your idea gathering method? You know, know, um, You know that feeling that you have um, when your browser crashes and you lose like 357 tabs that you had open? That's my process of collecting is those 357 tabs. (laughs) Basically, I've kind of learned that, you know, what I'm interested in, in my subconscious is not always going to come to me in a neat and organized package. It's not going to be a linear idea. And so I've kind of learned to embrace my curiosities. And whatever I am curious about, and I want to learn about this, to let myself learn about it, because there is a reason that I am interested in it. And often it's like there's these two neurons in my brain that are just trying to get together to make spark. And it's like, if you fight where your natural interests are and try to force yourself to do it in other ways, that connection doesn't happen. But I have found that if I just kind of embrace it and follow those things that I'm interested in and let myself kind of geek out about 
odd subjects sometimes, that that's where those connections come from. Um, sometimes it takes years before I know what I am actually writing about in a story. Um, I'm actually going to be, I'm starting to draft my fourth middle grade novel um, in December. And so I'm in that notebook phase with that project. And I've been collecting things for that project for about four years now. And that's literally just been a process of when I have a tab up and I take a screen grab, recognizing this thought has something to do with that project. And I just dump it in a folder. And then I do the same thing in my notebook. I notice something, I tear it out, I tape it into the notebook. I, I am very like scrapbooky. And so I collect all those little pieces. Um, and then slowly it's like the idea matures in my brain and actually becomes a story. And that's, it's exciting, also terrifying when you sit down to try to translate all those interests. In a lot of ways, it's almost like you're doing self-therapy. You're like, what am I, what is my problem? What is the problem I'm writing about here? <laughs> Um, and once you figure that out, then you kind of know where that heart is for your character because they have that problem. You know, our characters are all kind of a reflection of ourselves. Um, so I try to tell people not to be too rigid or too structured when you're trying to discover things that it's fun. Just let yourself play and enjoy like learning about different things. You never know where that's going to go. It could be a picture book. It could be a novel. It could be you know, some amazing resource that you make that you share with other educators. Um, but definitely keep the tabs up. It's okay. It's okay to have your tabs up. <laughs> you can bookmark them too. <laughs> so in that vein of letting things go where they go, is there is there a time sometimes when you travel somewhere with your writing and with your book where you're just like, yeah, that tab does need closed. And so does that one. Like, do you often find yourself sort of scrapping things and moving on to something new? Or do you frequently find because you've done a lot of pre-planning that you know where it's going? And so it, while you might find surprises along the way, you don't see a lot of like scrapping of entire chunks of your writing or, you know, completely yeah. changing an idea. Well, here's the thing. Like when I'm doing the pre-writing, I'm asking myself, I'm tapping into the character's emotional arc. I'm wanting to know what's messed up in their life and what is the problem they're facing at the beginning and how do they grow and change so that by the end, they have somehow addressed that problem. That's all internal action. That's all internal growth. That's the character's heart. When I know that is when I start writing. However, when I start writing, I often don't know what the external plot should be. Sometimes there's like a spark, a connection, a metaphor, and I can tell, oh, I should be writing about this kind of external plot. But often I get it absolutely completely wrong. So in Counting Time, the first draft of that, um, Time moves with her family to New York City. And it's, you know, she's acclimating to a new school, uh, living in a city. She's never lived in an apartment building. She's only lived in suburbia before. She's never lived in a diverse neighborhood. You know, there's all kinds of things that she's experiencing for the first time. And um, she doesn't always like it. She's not sure if she likes living there. Um, and I, when I was working on that, you know, I was trying to figure out how should I show this, that she doesn't like living there? So my first idea was, well, she's going to pretend she's in the witness protection program. And so my whole first draft was about her pretending that she was in the witness protection program. If you've read this book, you know that there's no witness protection program in it at all. 
So it's like the actual external action, the plot was just wrong. But I see those as like Legos. It's like you build something out of Legos and you realize that all the pink ones are wrong and they should be yellow ones. It's a pain in the butt to take it apart and change it to yellow ones, but you can do it, you know, with patience and effort. So with counting time, I got to do that like eight times. I, I wrote nine drafts of that book. Uh, with every missing piece, I only did five drafts. So definitely the process is improving, but I'm not a plotter who has a defined outline and knows exactly what the external action is. I kind of have to discover it. And once I do discover it, I know it's right, but I'm often throwing away a lot of words. That's why I always tell people writing is rewriting. It's not about finishing your draft one time. It's about finishing it like five or 10 times, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. I, it's been so fun hearing about your process because it's a, it's a little different than other people that I've talked to. So I'm, I'm enjoying the differences. I really like it. Um, so as an author, are there some individuals who are kind of your heroes or who have inspired you in what you're doing? I definitely have heroes that I have looked to. And I thought about this. I thought about this question. There are a lot of authors I admire um, and that I am friends with now and that I've learned a lot from. But honestly, the person who inspired me to want to tell stories is my mother. Uh, my mother was a labor and delivery nurse for 30 years and she worked the night shift. And she used to come home and tell us how many babies she had that night. And she would tell us birth stories. And as I got older and when I had my own children and was going through all that, she would share birth stories. She shared them with her uh, labor and delivery classes when she was teaching people. And so I grew up with this, this, this idea of learning from each other through sharing these very personal stories. Um, and so there is like a, was a culture of storytelling in my house. And so I think about her a lot. She's the one my first book was dedicated, dedicated to is my mother. I said for my mother, the truth teller, because she was all about being honest and honoring those stories and sharing them with each other, because that's how you learn how to be a person, right? So I'm trying to do the same thing in writing books. Hopefully people learn a couple of things from my characters. <laughs> oh, I love that story. That's great. Um, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Melanie. And for all of you out there, if you haven't signed up for the conference yet, definitely sign up for Melanie's session, and she will be signing books at the conference too. So thanks for joining us, and we're so excited to meet you in person. Thank you. Thanks for listening to CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. To find out more about CCIRA, go to ccira.org. On CCIRA.org, you can join as a member or find great resources like our professional development blog, which posts every Tuesday and has a variety of guest writers on an awesome selection of topics. CCIRA is a professional organization of educators and community members dedicated to the promotion and advancement of literacy. We also have a Twitter account at Colorado Reading. You can find us on Instagram at CCIRA underscore Colorado Reading. 
or you can find us on Facebook where we also have a members only group that we're trying to build and our Facebook account is CCIRA Colorado Reading. We'd love to hear more from you and again if you're looking for new content please send any questions or things you'd be interested in seeing from CCIRA to CCIRA video at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week.